0: to kind of move off from that just a little bit and and really just kind of address something that uh, a question that seems to come up quite often. In fact, um, uh, some of the most common questions that I have been asked uh, during my time in the ministry and especially as a pastor have really uh, concerned and dealt with the issue of assurance of salvation. I can't tell you how many times that I've been asked the question, um, how can I truly know if I'm born again, or how many times I've been asked the question, uh, you know, is there, is there any way that I, I can, is it possible for me to lose my salvation once I've received it? Or others might ask the question, is there any single sin or specific sin that I can commit that would cause me to forfeit my salvation? Now, if you have asked this one of these questions or, or felt kind of this tension before, you're not alone. It's very common, and in, in, in fact, I, I think uh, that most believers have asked these questions of themselves before and felt these things, and by felt, I mean that um, in, 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 it's a horrible place to be, but being a place where you're just not really sure if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ and you lack that type of peace and security, that can be a very frightening uh, place. Now, let me... Let me um, suggests this. I believe, well, let me state that there are many people even that I know that truly do believe that somebody can lose their salvation once they come to faith in Jesus Christ. There are denominations that teach that and hold to that. And I believe that at least those that I have met uh, believe that way for three primary reasons. Number one is because they simply don't know the Word of God. And what I mean by that is not in an arrogant way, but many of them just simply haven't taken the time to really accurately and carefully rightly divide the word of truth to find out what the Bible specifically says on this particular issue. The second reason people believe this, I believe, is because they misinterpret God's word. In other words, they'll come to a passage like the parable of the sower and the seed, and they'll see in the story where the seed takes root and it begins to grow, and then all of a sudden it begins to fade away. And they begin to interpret that as somebody being saved and then losing their salvation. Likewise, there's difficult passages like Hebrews chapter 6, where it begins to talk about people falling away from the faith, and again, they interpret that as somebody who is in the faith, that somebody who's truly been born again who ultimately loses their salvation. But there's a third reason why I believe people believe that they can lose their salvation, is because they oftentimes elevate their own personal experience above the clear teaching of the word. If you've been in church long enough, you've seen this. You've seen people who have supposedly come and and prayed to God to be saved. They've maybe walked an aisle. They've been baptized. They've even joined a church. They've functioned within the church. They've said spiritual things. They've maybe taught classes. They've even had positions of leadership within the church. We've all known folks like that, that at one point or another, they were just gone. They just fell away from the faith, and we're sitting there wondering why in the, what, what in the world ever happened to them. And so what people do is they they, they they look at that, and they interpret that as somebody who was once saved because it seemed so believable, but now they're gone, and, and, and they've left, and they're no longer walking in faith. Well, as I kind of stated just a couple minutes ago, please understand that This particular subject of of security of the believer, whether you could lose your salvation, whether that be possible, has really divided Christians throughout church history. Uh, There have been many different debates on this particular thing. And let me tell you that Baptists, and we are a Baptist church, specifically a Southern Baptist church, have historically leaned more Reformed and Calvinistic on this particular topic. In other words, uh, uh, Baptists, Southern Baptists, believe that Once a person is saved, that they cannot lose that salvation. And so, uh, what they call it, Baptist, we as Baptists, we usually refer to it as eternal security or security of the believer, whereas those in the Reformed tradition would call it the perseverance of the saints. Now, our church, our elders, our staff, and across the board, as well as our church membership, uh, we all believe that once a person is truly born again, that they will remain so forever. There is no being saved and then becoming unsaved. That's our stance. We are very confident in this. We are confident that this is clearly what the Word of God uh, teaches. But our confidence, listen, our confidence is not placed in us. Our confidence is not placed in us to hold on to Jesus or to hold on to faith or to hold on to our salvation. That's not why we're confident. We're confident that once we are truly born again, we will always be born again because we have a God that holds on to us. That's where our confidence is. And to be able to ultimately doubt or to suggest that somebody who was once saved now can lose their salvation, listen very closely, is not so much an indictment on us, but rather an indictment on God who is, as the author of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, is the author and what? Finisher of our faith. That which, God God is not like me. I start a lot of things that I do not finish. Anybody? Repairing a house, half done, still have crown molding, and all I have to do is call somebody to come over and do it, and I still can't finish it, right? And, And there's just pieces of things done. What God finishes, begins, starts salvation, he is faithful to finish. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 in verse 6. He says, I am confident, which literally means I am absolutely 1,000% certain that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. That which he begins, he will ultimately finish. But it is my belief. Now, what I love is you guys are just going to get all theology today. No practical application. Aren't you excited? Somebody said to the other day, they go, what's the practical application? And I'm like, why do we always have to have the practical application? There's no preaching. You know, sometimes we just need to know the truth, right? We just need to know the truth. And I say that because that's all I have is theological Truth this morning with no application, but I do believe that it's tremendously helpful to us. This is what I, what I believe. I believe that to suggest that a true believer can lose their salvation diminishes God. It seeks to diminish that belief and teaching, diminishes God, and it diminishes God in five ways. Now, I say five ways. But when I say five ways, I don't mean five ways in 50 minutes. I mean five quick ways, okay? So don't get panicky. I know how you guys are. I, I don't even like to give you points because if I say there's four, you're counting them down, all right? And you're counting down the five. But let me just go ahead, and we're going to breeze through this. But let me give you five ways that I believe that believing you're, you can lose your salvation diminishes God. First of all, to suggest that a true believer can lose their salvation is to diminish God's sovereign will. By sovereign will, and and you could define this in many different ways, but the way I'm defining is this, is I'm defining as God's ultimate will, God's ultimate purposes. When God ordains that something is going to happen, when he speaks and says, this will happen, guess what? This is going to happen. That is going to happen. Nothing can and nothing will keep it from being fulfilled. Are you with me? Now, Jesus says that when he came, he came to do God's sovereign will, to fulfill that which he had ordained to occur. In John chapter 6, verse 38 through 40, just follow along up here and and just write some notes. Maybe write these scripture passages down as you go. You won't have time to uh, turn to all of them. But this is what Jesus says. He says, For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He says, okay, so I came to fulfill God's ultimate purposes. What he ordained to occur. I'm here to make sure that that happens. And what is his will? And he says, and this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father. That everyone, not some, not most, but everyone... Who looks on the Lord and believes in him should have eternal life, not temporal life, but eternal life, and I will rise him up on that last day. What is it that God gave to his Son? He gave those that he had elected before the foundations of the earth to his Son to whom Jesus Christ would then die on the cross and raise from the dead in order to give eternal life to those to whom God had chosen. That's why he came. Now, I know that we have a divided congregation this morning. I know that we all interpret the choosing of God in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 in many different ways. We have those who are far more Calvinistic here that go to this church. And what they will suggest is, hey listen, when God chose before the foundation of the earth, it was by his own sovereign choice, not based on you, not based on me. He just chooses to do what he chooses to do. And he chose to save some, and that's up to God, and it's his sovereign choice. On the other side... We have those who are more Arminian. And what they say is, hey, absolutely, we believe that God has chose people. But we believe that God has chose people based on his foreknowledge, that he looked to the future and he saw that you and I would ultimately choose him. So based on our choosing of him, he then chose us on the foundation of the world, well, I'm not here to debate any of this because the truth is most, most people here are probably a mixture of both of those things, some crazy monster that mixes both of those things together. But let me suggest this. It doesn't matter where you fall there. The truth is still the same. Those to whom God has elected, whether it be by his own sovereign choice or whether it be by his foreknowledge of him, knowing who would ultimately choose him or not, the truth is still the same. He will not lose any that the Father has given to him. Do you get that? None. So it would make absolutely no sense to suggest that Jesus Christ would, or God, would come seek some, that he would ultimately save some, and then somehow he would lose some. This would be completely diminishing of God's uh, sovereign will. Would you agree? Say amen. When God sets out to do something, When he says this will happen, this will happen. He says that those whom he elected, God, Jesus Christ, will raise up in the last days. Number two, to suggest that one can lose their salvation is to limit God's amazing grace. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Why did God save you? Because you were good? Because you did good things? Because you merited his favor by doing good things? No. It's because he's good. And because he's gracious. And he, extended, he saved us by grace through faith alone. And when he extended his grace, he did it by forgiving us of our sins based on the completed work of Jesus Christ, based on Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He died in your place. That's his grace. Then he extends that grace by forgiving your sin. Now, here's the question. When he died for your sin and he forgave you of your sin and your sins were satisfied on on him on the cross 2,000 years ago, what sins were satisfied? What sins were forgiven? What sins did he pay for? Because here's here's the view. The view is, if you can lose your salvation, that person stating that is saying that Jesus' death was not sufficient. That he only died for some sins and not all sin. That there's still some sin out there that those to whom he saved, his sacrifice was not sufficient. His grace was not sufficient to cover. Well, the writer of Hebrews answers the question, which sins did he die for? Which sins did he cover? Hebrews 10, 12 through 14. Listen to what the author says. He says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why did he sit down? He was finished. He says, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For notice, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By his death, by that one act, he paid for all sin. Yes, those sins that we committed before we came to faith in Jesus Christ. But not only those, but the sins that we commit now and the sins that we will commit in the future. People will ask, Brother Mike, what if we die before our sins are confessed? What if we don't confess our sin up to date? You are under the great grace of God. All of the sins were satisfied, the wrath of God towards you was satisfied completely. All of your sins were, forget, were forgiven. So to suggest that we can lose our salvation because of some future sins that we commit after we come to faith in Christ is to diminish both his sacrifice and his grace. If he only forgives some sin, it's grace. But it is amazing grace in which God has extended to us. Number three. To suggest that one can lose their salvation is to diminish God's unconditional love. His unconditional love. Romans 8.35 For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, that's enough for an amen. Nothing. He's convinced, absolutely, that there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Here's, this is why that's so great. Because whenever God's love is demonstrated, it's always demonstrated with His act of love. The act of love of His Son dying on the cross. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. There's the love. Here's the act that He gave His only begotten Son. Love in action. Got it? Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. But God shows us his love for us and that while we were still sinners, there's a the love, Christ dies for us. There's the action, love and action. His love is always demonstrated through his action of saving us. So if his love never ends, if his love Is never separated from us. If we can't be separated from his love, we can't be separated from his saving action of his cross. Are you with me on this? Some of you, this isn't doing anything for you. Look in your heart, see if you're saved, because this is good news of Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate us from that. It's it's what we call unconditional love. The Bible says In Ephesians chapter 1, and later down in verses 7 to 8, it tells us that we were predestined as adoption as sons of God. We were once children of the devil, but now we're children of God. Why? Based on his grace, based on his mercy, we're children of God. Is there anything your son can do to become an unson? I know that's not really appropriate language. I couldn't figure out how to say it. Can he become an unson or an undaughter? No, and we even tell them that, right? We come to them, and I'm not really sure that this is a good thing even to say to them sometimes, but you come there and say, son, it doesn't matter what you do, I love you anyway. Oh, you're gonna love me even if I go and do this and that and the other thing? Yes, I'll still love you, son. I'll still love you if you do that. And the idea is nothing's gonna change the fact. If they, if they turn into a Ted Bundy, Ted Bundy's love st- mother, there's nothing that could change the fact that his dad was Ted Bundy's dad. Nothing can change that. The bottom line is this, God is ultimately saying, our relationship is based on my unconditional love for you. Let me ask you this, when he loved you and he died for you, were you pursuing him? Were you seeking him? Were you serving him? Were you loving him? No. When he loved you, you were not at your best, you were at your worst. He loved us while we were yet sinners, haters of God, rebels, adversaries, mockers, and monsters of iniquity. He loved us. It's the same type of love that we're supposed to have within our marriages. In Ephesians 5, he says, this is a mystery. This, This relationship, this marriage is a mystery. It demonstrates what? God's unbreakable relationship. Between he and his church, when people come and they say, well, Brother Mike, I'm leaving my spouse, I say, why would you do that? And they say, because of this. And I said, yeah, but we are not to leave our spouse. We are not to abandon our spouse. Why? Because the whole purpose is to show unconditional love so a lost and dying world would see what it's like to be in a right relationship with God who never gives up on you and never gives you over. Next, to suggest that one can lose their salvation is to diminish God's infinite power. John chapter 10, verse 24, if you're counting this is number four. I, we're almost over. OK? To suggest that one can lose their salvation is to diminish God's infinite power. John 10:27 through29. "My sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one, and no one, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is great, greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. The devil who is more powerful than you or I. The demons who are more powerful than you and I cannot pluck us or rip us from the saving hand of the Father of God. They cannot rip your salvation. And let me tell you, if they could, they would. They want to do it. They would desire it. They want you to spend an eternity in hell, but they are not strong enough to be able to do it. Some have suggested, well, no one else can take us from our hand, but can't we rid ourselves from the hand of God? Are you anyone? Are you no one? No, you can't even take yourself out of the hand of God. You could douse yourself with axle grease from head to toe and you still couldn't squeeze out of the hand of God. You cannot be taken from his saving hand. It's clearly what the word is teaching. Number five, this is when you rejoice, even if you're not rejoicing in the truth, it's number five. To suggest that one can lose their salvation is to diminish God's regenerative work. What that simply means is this, that when God saved you, he radically changed you. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. New. Brand new. Not refurb. Brand new. Old has passed away. Behold, all things are new. Listen to me. When you got saved, he gave you a new heart. He gave you new values, new ideas, new plans, new loves, new desires, new beliefs, uh, new new all of these things, And, and there's new beliefs, and he replaced them with new things of salvation. Now God plants within us new desires, new loves, New inclinations, new truths in our hearts that well up in our mind and our hearts, new thoughts, new ways, new actions, things that we never had before, before we came to faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because of the radical work that He did inside of us. That's why we know that if we are truly born again, we will produce fruit, characteristics, and action which is consistent with salvation. Why? Because we've been changed. We're new. We've now produced the things of God naturally. They come out of us. Now, Ezekiel 36, verse 27, 25 through 27 shows us and speaks about God's regenerative work of what he did in us when he saved us. He says this, he says, I will sprinkle you with clean water and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Now notice this. And I will give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new heart. It's not going to be that old, corrupted heart that didn't want me, that hated me, that didn't want to have anything to do with me, that would sin a high-handed sin against me, that said, I'll do what I want to do because I'm my own God. I'm going to give you a whole new heart. I'm going to give you one now that naturally the affections for me are prevalent within your heart. You don't have to stir up those affections Too, I'm going to place them there from time to time. We have to stir those up by rem- reminding ourselves of what Jesus did and who Jesus is. He says, but I'm going to give you a new heart. Not only that, but I'm going to give you a new spirit that's going to dwell within you. And the spirit that's within you, according to Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 13 through 14, is a seal that gives us confidence that we are truly born again. It says, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now notice this, who is the guarantee. Who is the guarantee. You receive the Holy Spirit, which has sealed you, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possessions of it to the praise of his glory. He gives us the new heart. He gives us a new spirit. Now notice this. And I will rejoice, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. When we make the mistake and teach, or suggest, or believe, or to think that we can lose our salvation, it is based on our own ability to remain saved based on our will, on our works, and our love for God, and on our strength. But the Bible teaches us that our ability to remain safe rests not on ours, but God's sovereign will, God's amazing grace, God's unending love, God's infinite power, and God's regenerative work within us. Some will say, well, Brother Mike, I understand that, but then how do I know whether I'm truly saved? We don't have time to get in through all of this, but let me tell you what the answer that keeps coming up through the word of God time and time and time away. You persevere. You persevere. Listen to these scriptures very quickly. John chapter 8 verse 31 through 32 says this, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, That means if you continually, perpetually keep on going, keep abiding in God's word, you are truly my disciples. Colossians chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed, listen, if indeed you continue in faith, uh, stable and steadfast. Third scripture, Hebrews 3.14. For we have come to share in Christ if we indeed hold our original confidence firm to the end. He says, how do we know that we're truly born again? We persevere. We keep believing. We keep obeying. We keep following. We keep hoping. We keep serving. We keep changing. We keep loving God all the more. We keep loving each other all the more. We keep propagating the gospel of Jesus Christ all the more. We keep walking in faith all the more. That's how you know that you're born again. Why in the world would the apostles so oftentimes keep saying, if you persevere, if you persevere, if you persevere? Here's why. When they were writing and when they were speaking, they were speaking to groups much like this one. And what they would suggest is almost everybody that they would speak to or write to the churches would at least claim that they were believers in Jesus Christ. And so they didn't want to give people a false assurance of salvation. He would know that not everybody who was within the church was a true believer in Jesus Christ. So he didn't want to come up and say, hey, guys, once you're saved, you're always saved, knowing that there were some in the church claiming to be true believers who were not truthfully converted, not actually children of God. So he didn't want to give them a false sense of security. It's kind of like this. Do you remember? I remember going and walking an aisle and, and all that kind of stuff and at least going and telling people I actually got saved in a little trailer, went back and just cried out for mercy of God, seven years old, in, in, in the back of this trailer and got down on my knees, and I just cried out, God saved me, didn't know a whole lot, just knew I needed to be saved, knew I was a sinner, knew that Jesus died for me, that's all I knew. That's all I knew, and I just cried out. And I remember afterwards when we went to the church, the church, this wonderful, well-meaning church guy, deacon came up to me and said, listen, now you've prayed to receive Jesus into your heart. And he says, now, The devil is going to try to convince you otherwise. People will try to convince you otherwise. He goes, I'm going to let you know that you are born again. He goes, you are saved. Nothing can ever change that. If you ever doubt, just know that it's not true doubt in God. And so what I found later is what he should have said is, listen, this is a wonderful day. This is a great day that you're calling out in faith to him but we can put no confidence in today. We can put no confidence in a prayer in and of itself because there will be many who have said they walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, were baptized and were believers and professed that they were believers and they will be confident of it. Because the only thing I can tell you is this. If you keep believing, if you keep following, if you keep Pursuing. If you keep obeying, then you know that you're in the faith. Let me ask you this. Are you presently trusting God fully and completely for your salvation? Are you completely and fully coming to Jesus Christ this morning and saying, you paid it all. You paid it all all. I am right before you because you made me right, because I'm believing and trusting in you. And I'm not talking just a mental ascent, but you are resting your whole life on it. Not just your eternity, but your life. And your life is demonstrated that you are trusting it because you are living for Jesus Christ. That's how you know that you're truly born again. So this morning, It's just a day of rejoicing. It is a day of rejoicing in praise of a God who saves and a God who keeps us safe. And the God who saves us will complete our salvation when we stand before him and meet him in heaven. Are you with me? But it's also a day of rejoicing for you who do not yet know him. For you have not tasted of his mercy and not tasted of his grace. If you will repent and turn from your sin and say, God, save me, Jesus. I'm not good enough, but I'm deserving of hell. But you are good, and because of your goodness and because of your goodness shown to me through your son, Jesus Christ, through his death, through his burial and resurrection, God, I know that I am saved. God will save you right where you are. That is worth rejoicing. Jesus, we come to you this morning. We thank you and we praise you for all that you are and all that you've done. Now, God, we come to a time of invitation. But God, we also come to you this morning just for the Lord's Supper, and we're going to do that in just a moment. But God, let us make sure that our hearts are right before you. God, can we just have a time of rejoicing, just calling out, just praying, just saying, thank you, God. Perhaps that were insecure and they thought maybe they've done something or whatever. But God, the confidence is not in us. The confidence is in you. Let us turn to praise and worship and glorify you for it. God, for those who are here and in your heart, they're realizing, God, I do doubt, I do doubt whether I'm truly born again because there is no evidence of my salvation. God, would they repent and believe in you? Save them, God. Seal them by your Holy Spirit. Change them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to be down here with.